together because of his greatness and because of his love to us. And that love is not surpassed in its manifestation by anything else other than Jesus Christ coming to this earth and dying on the cross for our sins and saving all those who would believe. We have been talking about stewardship throughout the month of January. We've talked about several things already, as you know. Our priorities, our finances, our time, our gifts, and now the final message in this series is going to be about the gospel and our stewardship of the gospel. It truly has been entrusted to us. It has been left to us. Jesus made that very clear when he was speaking with his followers and he gave to them what is often referred to as the Great Commission. And so he has left it to us. It is in our trust and he has chosen human beings who have been changed by its message and believing in its truth to bear witness of it to all generations, to take that message and to make disciples with it to see those come to saving faith and be baptized as a profession of that faith publicly, to identify with the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, and then to grow through the truth of the gospel. Wherever Jesus has been proclaimed, we see lives change for the good. Nations change for the better. Thieves become honest. Alcoholics become sober. Hateful individuals become channels of love. And unjust persons embrace justice. What we're going to talk about this morning has incredible power. And it's been given to us as a part of our trust. We should not keep it to ourselves, obviously. We'll talk about that today, too. The Christian that is bound by his own horizon, the church that lives simply for itself, is bound to die a spiritual death and sink into stagnancy and corruption. We never can thank God enough for giving us not only a whole gospel to believe, but a whole world to give it to, writes A.B. Simpson. A good reminder that what we're going to talk about today is not something that's just been given to us to keep. It's a part of our trust and stewardship. How we use it and how we manage it are critical. And in doing that, it is incumbent upon us to understand and know what the scriptures give to us as the true gospel. We want to talk about that a little bit today too because not everything that labels itself gospel or parades as Christianity is Christianity. A writer from a while ago, A.W. Pink, wrote it this way. He said, as Christ has a gospel, Satan has a gospel too. The latter being a clever counterfeit of the former. So closely does the gospel of Satan resemble that which it parades. Multitudes of the unsaved are deceived by it. Doesn't Paul give us a clear definition of the gospel when he talks about the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. His life all culminating, all the actions and words and works of his life culminating in that, that plan that, that 
the eternal council had from eternity past where Jesus would come, live, die, be buried, and rise again on the third day. That powerful truth, that everything comprising that truth, the the powerful gospel. And Paul distills it. But in his distillation and in in his simplicity, he also reveals to us profound truth that cannot and must not be compromised. See, we cannot mistake the simplicity of the gospel for permission to change the gospel or to make it different than than what God gave to us as being the gospel. It's not our play thing. It is a part of our stewardship, and we need to keep it pure. As we do, the message that we speak then will have power to save people from their sins and eternal damnation and put them on a trajectory of growth in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus. But a lesser gospel does none of that. However, it does powerfully deceive. This true, powerful gospel gives meaning and relevancy to the Old Testament prophetic words, does it not? In fact, J. Barton Payne, one scholar, found as many as 574 verses in the Old Testament that somehow point to or describe or reference the coming Messiah, the one who would save his people from their sins. Edersheim found 456 Old Testament verses referring referring to the Messiah or his times. And conservatively speaking, Jesus fulfills at least 300 prophecies in his earthly ministry. This message of the gospel, the life and death and burial and resurrection, all of Jesus validates confirms, fulfills the words of antiquity from the Old Testament. And those prophetic words find meaning and relevance in Jesus, the central theme of the gospel, of course. You could look at it even further still and see that this gospel, the story of Jesus and his life and death and burial and resurrection That message provides the answer, either looking forward to it or looking back on it, provides the answer for all of men's shortcomings in every dispensation of time. In innocence, what happened? You have the fall, don't you? You have Adam and Eve uh, falling into sin, making decisions that were entirely against what God had given to them as being the law that he wanted them to follow. Satan came, and in his subtlety, he he tempted them, and they fell, plunging the entire human race into sin. Sin by birth and all sin by choice as well. And the remedy for all of that is found where? The gospel. Jesus, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, all of it. What about conscience, when men were governed by their conscience after the fall? Well, what happens in that dispensation of time? The scripture is quite clear, isn't it? That the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that his thoughts were only evil continually. And God judges, doesn't he? 
with severe judgment while promising at the end that he would never judge in that same extremity, in that same way. Again, he, it's still a worldwide flood and judgment on sin. The ark being the presence of salvation in that dispensation and all those who were found on it were saved. Very similar to all those who believe in Jesus will be saved from their sins and the judgment of God. So Jesus remains the answer. We pivot to government, human government, and men being under the the control of, of government. But yet even in that dispensation of time, man finds themselves and gives themselves over to becoming more and more independent from God. To the point where God confounds their languages at the Tower of Babel and sends them off into various groups in the world. Still, Jesus being the answer for man's desire to be independent from God by showing them the only way to God. Then you have promise, don't you, where God makes promises, covenants to his people. But yet, time and time again, what happens in that dispensation of time? Man violates the conditional promises One writer put it this way, Genesis opens with in the beginning God created and ends with in a coffin in Egypt. From creation and God's original intent to bondage in Egypt because of sin. God institutes law as a part of his divine plan, but yet even that is violated consistently And it ends in a dispersion of his people that continues to this day. Then enters the God-man. A 400-year period of silence called the intertestamental period. After that dispensation of law, God speaks through the most powerful manifestation of his word in real living color. He sends us the gospel in a life human form. And he says to us, by grace are you saved through faith. And Jesus is identified as the way and the truth and the life. And no man gets to the Father except through him. He truly is King of kings and Lord of lords. And that as well will be powerfully manifested futuristically, won't it? in that reign of Christ as we anticipate the new heaven and the new earth. And as we also look forward to the day when we will be in heaven forever with our God and with our Christ, worshiping him for all eternity as he truly reigns. Reigning above every heart, as our song said earlier. He has that position now but that will be realized then by all. This gospel gives meaning and relevance to the Old Testament prophecy. It provides the answer for all of man's sin and shortcomings in every economy of time. But it also provides motivation and purpose for every area that we have in our stewardship. Look at the list with me, if you would. We, we began with priorities. That was the first message that, that we looked at, wasn't it? If I am going to be captivated by the gospel and, and motivated by the gospel, 
what will that determine about my priorities? Well, it has a lot to say about my priorities, doesn't it? And if I'm not captivated by the gospel, and if I'm not controlled by the gospel, my priorities are going to reflect that. In fact, they will not be the priorities that God wants me to have. They will be way off base. What is the guiding light that keeps me on the path? I want to say to you today, it's the gospel. What about your finances? Will it not be reflected in the way that you use and manage your your money and all material possessions if you don't treasure the gospel as Jesus has called you to? Of course it will. What about your time? Yeah. What about your giftedness? Absolutely. You see, every one of these flows freely from the gospel if we'll just let it. If we'll just surrender to this as being the treasure that it is, if we will see it and savor it the way that God intends for us to, then stewardship all makes sense. We have tremendous clarity. There is no mystery here. It's very easy to wrap our minds around if we just get this right, the gospel. Now, I have got some very practical things to share with you. And the eloquent words that I quoted in our introduction by many different writers, mine are going to pair in comparison to that. But I hope that you will take these things and just put them into your heart and make them a part of your life as it relates to the stewardship of your gospel, of the gospel, because everything in your realm of stewardship depends on it. It's critical, it's serious, it's essential, it's necessary. So this morning, I offer you for the message, the theology is found in the following verses to communicate to us four action words. Some of them have deep feeling to them, especially one. We'll look at that. Four things that we can all embrace as steps to follow through in relationship to the gospel that can dramatically change our lives. And because it's so powerful, change the lives of those who are around us too. So these are simple. The first thing I want to talk to you about in our stewardship of the gospel is the word no. This is absolutely critical. I was in a group of people recently, people who are church people, and I asked the question, if someone came to you today and they said to you, I want to know God through Jesus. I want to be saved from my sins. What would you tell them? Fair question, right? For every Christian. It's not a a sneaky question. It's not a trick question. It's just very straightforward. Somebody wants to know about how they can know Jesus and know God, consequently, have their sins forgiven. Where would you start? What would you tell them? The silence was deafening. So I want you to think about that. I want you to think about your your treasuring and your savoring of the gospel. I want you to think about whether or not you know the gospel. I mean, to the point where if someone needs to know the gospel, you can tell them the gospel with authority. Now, your faith story is a really good place to start with that. But like everything else in life, the most important thing that you can know and understand and communicate is what God thinks about anything. 
So while our experience is critical and important to establishing relationships with people and maybe opening the door to gospel conversations, the most important thing that we can know and communicate is what God has to say about it all. And that always trumps human experience. Always. Because it's the more sure word of prophecy that transcended even the experience that his followers had on the Mount of Transfiguration as Peter records that powerful passage on the scriptures and how powerful they are and how important they are. So can we rehearse some things today? Let's start with something very familiar in John chapter 3. We know these words. We could We could say this. In fact, let's just do that. Let's read it together. Let's begin, please. For God so loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Good place to start. Good verse to start with. Because it identifies Jesus as the exclusive one, the exclusive object of our faith, that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It was verses like this and and others that formed the theology of the great reformers who were willing to stake their life on this truth, who were willing to stand up against a, a corrupt religious system and say, no, the Bible teaches as Luther embraced Those who are justified by faith shall live, or the just shall live by faith. Those words are credited for beginning the Protestant Reformation. A reaction and response and position against corruption in religion. Believing in Jesus. It's not works, it's not baptism, it's not membership, it's not the ongoing maintenance through communion. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. That's it. We need to know that. We need to be willing to believe that, and we need to to be committed to sharing that, even if it's not popular with those whom we share. How about 1 Corinthians chapter 15? I want to begin reading in verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel that I proclaimed to you. We alluded to this earlier. You received it and have taken your stand on it. You are also saved by it. Wow, there's a lot of theology about our soteriology right there. It was received, it was believed, they stood on it and they were saved by it. If you hold to the message I proclaim to you, unless you believe for no purpose. In other words, don't compromise the message. Hold to it. That's where salvation is. For I passed on to you as most important but I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This spiritual war that was won on the cross, the war for our souls, the answer to it and victory over it was found in Jesus. And those who receive that and believe that and hold true to that, that truth with, with, with no compromise at all. That's where eternal salvation is found. It's not found in a weaker message. It's found in the message. It's very simply stated in Acts 16, isn't it? Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus 
and you will be saved, you and your household. Knowing the gospel by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus and minus nothing. Holding true to that. We, we could walk you through what's often referred to as the Romans road and showing the, the necessity uh, of a savior for those who are sinners and that God demonstrates his love in Romans 5. That Jesus died for us while we were still in our sins. In Romans 10, if we will confess, if we will believe, we are saved from our sins. Know it. Know it well. And there's no way that we can share every verse that speaks of the gospel today. But we need to be students of the gospel. We need to understand it and know it so that we can believe it ourselves but so that we can also communicate it with those who still need to know Jesus. There's a second word I want to talk to you about today in our stewardship of the gospel. That's the word show. Our profession of faith should mean something in our life. We should be showing through the way that we talk and the way that we think and the way that we live and react and respond to life that we truly have come to saving faith in Jesus. You see, there is a popular opinion today that somehow the, the outside is disconnected from the inside or that the outside doesn't matter because after all, God looks on the heart, but man looks on the outward appearance. Well, what I want to say to you is, is that both of those are important. You know, while God looks on the heart, people are looking on the outward appearance. And what I say I believe in my heart should be reflected in my life so that I can point them to Jesus so that nothing in my life is inconsistent with the message that I say that I believe. Skeptics and cynics will certainly quickly notice inconsistencies. But what does the Bible have to say about this? Well, Colossians 3, 17, a good place to start as any. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You know, Jesus has a front row seat to everything that's going on in your life anyway. It's not like you can hide something from him. So do everything in his name for his glory, giving thanks to the Father through him. And if you can't do that with whatever it is you're contemplating doing, then what you're doing needs to change. Colossians 3 again, verse 2, set your minds on what is above, not on what is on the earth. What we love, what we treasure, right? That's where our heart's going to be. If we truly treasure gospel and truly treasure Jesus and a relationship with the Father through Jesus, this is truly what will be reflected in our lives. Romans chapter 12 and verse 10, show family affection to one another with brotherly love. Outdo one another in showing honor. John 13, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Showing the gospel, showing the renovation that has happened in my heart. It affects the way that I live and relate to others. I love them in accordance with the commands of Scripture. And I show that truly I've been a recipient of God's love and saved from my sins. Philippians 1.27 says just one thing. 
Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or an absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, working side by side for the faith that comes from the gospel. So we have here the exhortation and teaching that we would live in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. What is that life? Well, it's definitely being committed to being Christ-like, to being a student of who Jesus is and how Jesus thinks and how Jesus lives and the revelation that he has given through the writers of Scripture as to how that's supposed to look like in the church and outside the church. Colossians chapter 4, act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Your speech should always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. Act wisely toward outsiders, gracious, seasoned with salt in every dealing that I have with people, the scripture here calls them outsiders, people outside of the faith community, outside of the household of God, people who aren't believers. I need to be careful with how I relate to them. I need to be careful in in how I answer them. I need to know how to answer them. I need to be gracious in my relationship with them. Why? Because the purpose that God has called me to is bigger than the moment of interaction that I have with them. The purpose that God calls me to in their life as I touch them and relate to them is eternal. I'm here to make an impact. I'm here to have conversations with people and interact with those who are outside of the family of God. And how I do that is critical to me sharing the gospel. There is an eternal purpose. Don't just live in and for the moment. Think about what your relationship and what this moment has to do with eternity. Can I share a test with you that I had this week? Now, I'll have to say that uh, I don't know for sure if this particular individual is outside of the household of faith. I'm assuming that, okay? So I my son needed a prescription, and so I go to the drugstore uh, to get uh, the prescription. And for some reason, our family uses two different drugstores, okay? So I use CVS, and my wife and son use Walgreens, and we're trying to resolve that. But anyway, it, it may or may not have necessitated a marriage counseling. But anyway, um, so here, this is how Satan works. Here I am, I'm, I'm on my way to Walgreens, I pull in CVS parking lot first because I forget, right? And I'm like, no, I got to go across. Where we go, we, we have both across the street from each other. So I'm like, oh, this is such a waste of time. Why isn't Stephen stuff at CVS? So because I had like three other things I had to accomplish in a short period of time. I, I'm telling you all that so you don't think so poorly of me when I tell you what I did, okay? So <laughs> I, I, I have an excuse, I guess. So I get across, I go through, and these people, they don't know me. I go into CVS, you know, they know me. Oh, what's the, okay, okay, yeah, 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 boom, and I'm out. Well, I get over there to Walgreens, and it's like, you know, they just don't know me. And I, there might be three or four cars in front of me, and I, I get up to the window and uh, had to wait a little while before somebody noticed I was there, you know, one of those things. And I'm just like, oh, wow. 
lady comes and, you know, starts talking to me. I can't hardly hear her. There's something going on with the, you know, you think people put more money in these intercom systems. They, they work better. But this, I just couldn't hardly hear her, so we had to go back and forth a little bit. And I'm watching the time, you know. I'm like, oh, man, this is taking way too long. Stephen's going to have to come get his prescription for himself, you know. So talking with her, and she finally, after me giving her everything about my son that I know, she was finally able to give me the prescription. CVS, not the case. Maybe one question. I'm in and out. You know, we got it. And I'm like, man, either somebody hates me or they really don't know me here. And then she goes, well, do you want to pay with the card that's on file? I don't know what card's on file. So I'm fishing in my wallet trying to find the HSA card, and uh, I couldn't understand what number. She gave me the last four numbers. I couldn't understand that. And so I go to put the card in the thing, the tray that comes out, and you know what happened, right? As brilliant as I am, I miss the tray, and the card falls to the ground. I may or may not be able to reveal everything that went through my mind in that moment. So I, I said, ma'am, I got to back up. I got to get out of the truck. I got to get the car. You know, I'm just, I am so frustrated. You know how stupid that is. That's so stupid, right, to get frustrated over that. So I back the truck up. Then I realize I'm too close to the side of the building and I can't get out. So I have to pull up and back out and finally get to my car. I don't even straighten the truck out. I just leave it cocked way out in the, right? So I walk up to the window on foot and give her my card, right? So I'm like, oh, I got to be careful. I don't, this, you know, the whole thing was running through my mind as I'm trying to maintain control of myself, but just something so little as that. And, and what I'm saying to you by that is God takes, or Satan takes those little things you know, an interaction that God wants us to have, apparently, I'm still looking for the reason, but an interaction that God wants us to have, if Satan gets in the middle of that with, with just, he knows our triggers and he's going to use them, and we can blow it, right? I mean, we can totally blow an opportunity to be gracious and kind and relate to somebody well. And, uh, yeah, so now you know all my triggers. Uh, don't do anything on purpose. Please don't, don't test me because I might fail. But we're supposed to act in a way that's worthy of the gospel even in those situations. And I'm telling you, these little things matter because people are watching and people are paying attention and people get it. And if they see somebody that's triggered by something so small, silly, and stupid, and that same person is claiming to be a Christian and wants them to believe in a life-changing gospel and I'm acting just like the worst scoundrel in the world? I mean, really, is that consistent? And the answer is no. So we have to be careful with that, don't we? Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that in a case where they speak against you as those who do what is evil, they will, by observing your good works, glorify God on the day of visitation. Conduct yourselves honorably among those who are Gentiles. Show it. Go is the next. I told you these were nothing profound. Go, right? And it's the words of Jesus. Jesus came near Matthew 28, and he says to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And some translations say, as you go about, some people think it's a good translation, that the emphasis is on making disciples. As you go about, you're to make disciples of all 
nations. I like the word ethnicity there. All ethnicities, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. The idea is no matter where you go, go with the gospel. If it's across the street, if it's down the hall, if it's across the state or around the world, you carry the gospel with you, period. You don't have to have some exotic place to go to take the gospel. You just take the gospel as you go and don't ever leave home without it, right? Take it with you. Make sure it's traveling well with you. And don't let anything in your life that you're supposed to be showing and projecting to an unbelieving world hinder you as you go about and try to make disciples. 2 Corinthians 5, I love the terminology here. It kind of gives some dignity to it, but it also reminds us. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, and look, new things have come. Everything is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Go, go with the gospel. Certain that God is appealing through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Ambassadors, mouthpieces, those who go and speak for another That is who we are. And in doing it, so there's no stone left unturned, Mark records for us, go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. By the way, those who have been created by God are looking for answers. You have probably experienced this more now, some of you in your lifetime than ever before, perhaps. It's interesting the conversations that you can have. The greater that desperation grows, right, maybe the more willing people are to hear about answers. Don't miss those opportunities. Finally, and something that arrested my attention, I I talked about it with our family as we looked into the scriptures yesterday evening following dinner. I want to talk to you about sorrow as it relates to our stewardship. And I'm not trying to make this some sort of spiritual quota item that if you haven't cried recently, you're not spiritual. Don't misunderstand me. But truly, our hearts need to be touched with the needs of others. Didn't Paul speak of this? He, he speaks of strong desire, right, in Romans 10. He says, brothers, my heart's desire, what, what I deeply desire and pray for to God concerning them is for their salvation. Is there anybody on your salvation prayer list? Anybody you're praying for? And what does Paul say before this in chapter 9? This wrecked me and captivated me. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience is testifying to me with the Holy Spirit that I have intense sorrow and continual anguish in my heart. For I could almost wish to be cursed and cut off from the Messiah for the benefit of my brothers, my own flesh and blood. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. 
The ancestors are theirs, and from them, by physical descent, came the Messiah, who is God over all, praised forever. Amen. Paul was so moved that his people would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, who had all of these things, the covenant, the law, the temple service, the promise, and from their ancestors came the Messiah. But they stumbled at this truth, didn't they? And Paul was so grieved by this that he said, he said, I'm willing, almost willing to be cut off from the Messiah myself if it would mean they would come to saving faith. So again, I I don't want to create a spiritual checklist here and some type of a quota that you need to have to be spiritual because that's not what this is about. But I wonder if we have, have been touched this deeply about the spiritual well-being of other people who still need to know Jesus. Do we even care? Does it even concern us? Has it ever deeply touched our emotions? And again, we're not building all of this on emotionalism, but I'm telling you, when you are touched deeply and emotionally by the spiritual needs of others, it's going to do something for your stewardship of the gospel. And it might look different in your life than it does mine. But don't be afraid to be vulnerable to this emotional touch as you care for and are concerned for and pray for those who need Jesus. Now, there's something else involved in the sorrow here. As we are sorrowing over the spiritual needs of others, we may find ourselves in difficult, sorrowful times if we have to suffer. There's two elements here I want to remind you of. They called in the apostles and had flogged them, Acts 5. They ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and released them. Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be dishonored on behalf of the name. Indeed, they were in a time of loss and trauma that many would see as being a time of sorrow because their own well-being was, was attacked and, and they were certainly suffering, humanly speaking. But in that time, there was joy. And in that time, there was a focus not so much on their own sorrow and suffering, but they were, they were rejoicing because they had been counted worthy to be dishonored on behalf of the name. And some of us, I think, are too heavily invested on making sure that doesn't happen rather than complying and submitting to it when it does happen because we're too worried about ourselves and not worried enough about advancing the gospel. And the apostles found joy in a time of great sorrow as the church was being persecuted. 1 Peter 3, And who will harm you if you are deeply committed to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be disturbed, but honor the Messiah as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. However, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping your conscience clear so that when you are accused, those who denounce your Christian life will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Suffer 
well, even if it brings you personal sorrow, count it joy that you were worthy, that I was worthy to be dishonored and defamed for the advancing of the gospel. These four things I, I give you as a way of kindling a fire in your heart. I know they kindled one in mine about my stewardship of the gospel. And I trust that God will use them in some way, in some way beyond the ability of this speaker for sure to arrest our attention and to bring about lasting change in our stewardship of the gospel.